This is Black and Gold Rush, the podcast where we talk about all angles of New Orleans Saints football. I'm your host, Rachel Jones, and I've been a Saints fan all my life, so I know just how much this team means to our city, both as a former reporter and from my season ticket in Section 257. Whether it's breaking down game tape or telling an inspiring off-the-field story, I'm here for it because the Saints bring us together. Let's get going. What's going on, Houdat Nation? Welcome to a brand new episode of Black and Gold Rush. As we can finally say, happy NFL Draft Week. As I promised you last week, my guest today is former Saints General Manager Randy Mueller. He has 30-plus years' experience as a football executive with the Saints, Seahawks, Dolphins, and Chargers, including when the Saints won their first playoff game ever in 2000. So today, we're going behind the scenes of the NFL Draft and a whole lot more. Exactly 20 years ago, as the reigning NFL Executive of the Year, Randy and Jim Hazlitt pulled the trigger and drafted Deuce McAllister on April 21st, 2001. So we'll get Randy's thoughts on that pivotal move here today, dispel some draft myths, and of course, get his take on where the Saints are going in this post-Drew Brees era. I was 11 years old when the Saints won that first playoff game against the defending champion Rams. You remember, right? Hakeem drops the ball. Hakeem drops the ball. While the Saints would go on to lose at Minnesota the following Saturday, on my 12th birthday, no less, that fumble recovery by Brian Milne is still a momentous occasion for us in the Houdat Nation. Randy gets very candid about how things ended in New Orleans and has some powerful advice for anyone who finds themselves unexpectedly fired. So let's not waste one more second and welcome in Randy Mueller. Randy Mueller, welcome to the show. It is great to be with you. Thanks, Rachel. It's good to be back in Saints world. Uh, one of the best times in my career. So anytime I get a chance to talk about New Orleans or the Saints or have any uh, connection with it, I jump at it. So I appreciate you asking me to come on. Absolutely. So just to set the stage for listeners, I reached out to you, A, because, of course, you were a former Saints general manager, and I've been following your blog posts, the Draft Chronicles, as we rapidly approach the NFL draft, one of which Peter King included in his Football Morning in America column a few weeks ago about the Saints drafting Deuce McAllister. So uh, before we dive into that, Randy, uh, I'd love for you to give us a glimpse of where you grew up and what first sparked your interest in football. Well, we're going way back. I got you. Yeah. Uh, I I grew up in a little logging town in Northern Idaho, uh, 2000 people, not a stoplight in town. Uh, When most kids had paper routes growing up, I had a trap line. So that gives you a little indicator of of my uh, childhood anyway. And one year I got a job as a ball boy working for the Seahawks. They had training camp just a couple hours from that little logging town. And so at age 17, I packed up my uh, belongings and, uh, goofy looking permed hairdo and went over to uh, uh, to the Seahawks facility and, and worked for $44 a week and ended up 20 years later, I was the boss. So it's a, kind of a 
shortened version of what happened to me and where I was, but that's how I got started. That's for sure. Oh my goodness. Wow. Working for $44 a week. That is true passion. So (laughs) right. I mean, that passion has really stayed with you. I mean, you've been in the business for, for over 30 years and now you've, uh, you've got your, your business, um, Mueller football advising. Uh, so just kind of tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Uh, you, yeah. um, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, it's been interesting. I, I had been active in the league until a couple years ago. Um, mm-hmm. I, I finished uh, 10 years with the chargers as their national scout and really just kind of tired of the road. I was spending 200 nights a year on the road, different bed every night, different college every night. And, and I'll be honest, it kind of wore me down. So I kind of did this and always have had this in the back of my mind, just a little advising company. And what I do is I, I advise people on all kinds of things in football, but I really write a blog and I, you've referenced it a couple of times and I write mm-hmm. it from the GM's chair and, and from the perspectives that I've had over the years. So I'm doing that. I write a couple pieces a week and I also do a podcast on The Athletic with Mike Sando. It's called The Football GM and we've done that for almost a year now. It's a weekly show and of course everybody's into the podcasting stuff and I said, why not? Let's let's talk about it. And, and so we do a lot of a lot of the things you read on MuellerFootball.com in the blog, we expand on in the podcast. So it's just, again, I don't know a lot, Rachel, but I do know a little bit about my time in the league. And so that's where I spend my you know, downtime. I watch a lot of tape. I'm still very active in evaluating players. And and it gives us a great chance to, to kind of go into more detail on the podcast than even the blog. So that's what keeps me going most of the time. When when the fishing isn't good, that is. <laughs> right, right. Up in, up in Seattle. Wow. So right. I mean, 200 nights a year on the road. So right. Being more, more stable in one place, (laughs) but right. I mean, tapping into what you know and what you love that's, that's great. Uh, I love, I love that story. I love what you're doing. And so speaking of, we're going to dive right into the draft chronicles, uh, which I'll link up to in the show notes, your series leading up to the NFL draft that you've been writing. Uh, it's really quite fascinating. I can just picture that conversation with Jim Hazlitt that you had where he's asking, what do we do if Deuce yeah. McAllister is there in real time on draft right. day? And your answer was quite simply, we pick him. I mean, (laughs) so, right. I mean, just kind of take us back. Like Deuce even said in his own interview with the Saints website that when he heard the news, he was excited, but also kind of wondering why, because Ricky Williams already being there and all the Saints had traded in 1998 to get him. So describe the role mock drafts played in the Saints landing their all-time leading rusher. Yeah, I, I would say this, and, and you mentioned that the mock drafts kind of led us down this road. And I've always been able to use these mock drafts as a tool. And when I say mock drafts, it's anybody's mock drafts. I, I don't care if it's a guy on the street, if it's a guy from another team, if it's a media guy. I welcomed all of our people to collect these drafts and bring them in and into our draft room. And once our board was set, then we would kind of rehearse how it was going to go by using all these mock drafts. So we would know in every scenario imaginable who would be there when we picked. And in the case you're talking about with Deuce, I had been to Nashville and saw him play in his bowl game his last year there. In fact, 
the New Orleans people will probably remember it was Eli Manning's coming out party because he came and played in the second half of that game for Old Miss. Mm-hmm. But I, I had Deuce in the back of my mind since then. And we had had a few little issues with Ricky Williams that people, you know, kind of know about as his oh, career yeah. went on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and, and Jim and I weren't the ones to draft Ricky. So we understood that, sure. that his tie was with the prior regime and, mm-hmm. and Deuce just made a lot of sense to us. It was, it was really stability. It was, we kind of wanted to know what we were getting every day and, and his style of play fit exactly with what I wanted to do offensively. It also fit with what Mike McCarthy wanted to do offensively, uh, who was our offensive coordinator at the time and, mm-hmm. and Jim's philosophy as well. So we went through all these mock drafts and only in one of them did it have Deuce being there for us. And so what it did was when we did all these mock drafts, I always thought this sparks discussion, right? So mm-hmm. he's there. Yes, those comments were made by by Jim and then by myself, but it gave us another chance to like for two hours, I remember us sitting around and trying to figure out why should we do this and why shouldn't we do this? But we vetted it having not been on the clock. So we were really ready, right? So we prepared for this the whole way, never in a million years that I think he was going to be there. But the fact that we had discussed it earlier, that I even went then took it to Mr. Benson and talked about him, but with him ahead of time. So we all kind of knew this was an option. And then it unfolded like it did in that one singular mock draft. It made it simple for us. We're going to pick this guy and we're going to move on. But we already had started all the parts like you do in maybe 15 other lanes as well. But this is the one that this was the card that got played and this was the hand we were dealt and and it worked out good for us. I mean, obviously Deuce is a you know, became the all-time leading rusher in Saints history and and the rest yeah. is history. So it, right. it was a, it's a good story and and I think a good valuable tool for teams nowadays even to use these mock drafts and not snicker at them. Absolutely. That's such a great point how you said that you welcome anybody's mock draft. I mean, yeah. it's become such a booming business now. Uh, so uh, after drafting players, um, how how much of their pre-draft evaluation is used to guide like how how they're coached, like or mm-hmm. is there like a blank slate when they enter the building? No, I think it's a really good question, and I think a lot of the information you gather <clears throat> definitely help you in how to teach a, a player, how to coach a player, how he might learn best. And I think you bring it up in a, in a timely fashion in that. Because of COVID, we don't have the same ability to go to these workouts and spend time with these kids individually. There are no private workouts anymore. People are are having to do these at pro days in group sessions. And the think tank is more herd mentality than individual team based in this COVID era. So those are those are really valuable pieces to the evaluation puzzle that I think teams really struggle to get nowadays. Um, I've had a uh, had a chance to to watch some of these Zoom meetings that they have, these Zoom interviews that they have with prospects now. And I'll be honest, it's just not the same. It's not the same as gathering this information when you're there face to face with them and can can really go through every different scenario with them to try to extract from them one if they can learn, two how they learn best, and then get to know them when they're under the gun and when pressure is really on them. So a lot of a lot of things that that people don't know uh, that evaluate from the outside that these teams actually have uh, tools to figure out on the inside. Wow, it's just so fascinating to get it directly from a GM's perspective. Uh, so I want to get into this notion of uh, another uh, notion that you wrote about players 
rising and falling up draft boards, a phrase we hear so often in the media. Um, And we're seeing play out um, with, for example, somebody like quarterback Mac Jones. I mean, we're seeing that. I mean, he was like a late first rounder and now it's like, oh, wait, he might go third overall to San Francisco. I mean, it's just I I can't even explain it, but uh, so, um, but you wrote, um, there's no such thing as hype or buzz that affects where a player sits on a team's draft boards that you think the truth is always somewhere in the middle. Is that pretty accurate? Right. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the notion of, of, uh, buzz or of risers and fallers really doesn't exist in an NFL draft room. I can tell you that you may move some cards around based on late coaches evaluations. But uh, what I was referring mainly to is players don't go from round five to round two or from round two to round six or some crazy. It seems like that happens a lot to justify the media then says, oh, he's a riser or he's a faller. Well, that's not really the case because the the team's evaluations have been in since February. The only evaluation that's going to change is maybe a coach's point of view. And I went way out of my way to make sure we didn't have these giant swings. I didn't want the loudest voice or the last voice in the room to affect where he was on our board after we'd spent 10 months trying to figure that out with multiple evaluations. So um, I do think cards do get moved. Uh, We always used to make fun of this uh, in the draft room. The the scouts would come in from the prior day and they'd say, did we have any all-star games in the middle of the night where cards moved around on the board, Uh, you know, fictitiously saying that then there's nothing that's changed, right? The last time we saw these guys play football was December and January. So why should it change our evaluations? There's some different parts of the evaluation that you have to factor in pro days, things like that. But for the most part, football has been done for really four months now. So we have a, a clear picture of what these guys are as football players. Wow. That that's fascinating. So the coaches, they weigh in, like, I'm sure some coaches approach it differently, how much they weigh into the, the draft process, like how, like how much they evaluate or how much they rely on the scouts to really put to put the draft board together like from your from your experience you've been with four different teams uh like did it really just vary based on the coaches personalities or their maybe their experience with uh scouting processes or right yeah i think it definitely varies from team to team it varies from coach to coach it really varies from gm to gm because it's really the GM's role to acquire the talent. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's what I want. I want the coach's input in the worst way as much as I can. I just don't want it to be the end all and the guiding light in all of this. What I really want their input in is setting our criteria by position for what we're looking for based on the positions we're going to put them in and the schemes that we're going to run. I want their criteria. I want them to write the job description, right? And I want us to be disciplined and process oriented to fill those job descriptions. My philosophy has always been, if you tell me exactly what you want, we'll find it. That's not a problem. We'll find exactly the right fit. So I, that, that, I think it's all about fit. In fact, the, the fifth draft chronicle that you've referenced is going to be in my, uh, uh for my blog about fit, because I think it's all about fit. I think it's the hardest thing to do is fit these players into your scheme. It's also one that New England has built a dynasty being more disciplined and process oriented using than any other team, in my opinion. So I I, I think the coaches have a giant role in this. 
And obviously they're coaching the team during the season. So they don't really get to weigh in until they're the last in the process. Sure. But it, I don't think it always has to be the loudest voice for sure. You also have to evaluate the evaluators, right? Some yeah. coaches are really good at it. Some coaches don't want any part of it. So you have to consider the role that they've interjected themselves in, whether they're all in or if they're just doing this as a task that, that has to be done as well. So more information, all that funnels through the GM and the head coach to figure out what the best route to, to go is. Wow. The way you put that, that you want the coach's input, but not have it be the guiding light, like write the job description. That's that's really, really quite eye-opening. I, I've, I love that. Well, uh, I think you can, you can, you can find uh, uh, applicants in any walk of life if you know mm -hmm. exactly what the job description is. So yeah. I want us to steadfastly be tied to that job description and we'll be able to find exactly what we want to fit in. And we can all be on the same page too. If we all know what we're looking for, it's easier to come to a consensus in our evaluations. I think a lot of teams struggle now because they really don't know what they're looking for, or they're not all on the same page within the building as to what they should be looking for. That's where I would spend a lot more time, I think, than most teams do now is figuring out what we're looking for. And my time with Nick Saban in Miami, I think we did that better than any time in my career. We spent tons and tons of time on figuring out exactly what we're looking for. And we stuck with that philosophy. Wow. Interesting. Do you think that that's why he's been so successful at Alabama? Like that he's, uh, I mean, obviously it's a different level, but uh, that they, they know exactly what their program is, is, is about. Well, I think that's part of it. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. he's a great coach. There's no, yeah. no denying that, but I do know they use the same philosophy that we used in Miami. Mm -hmm. And he allowed me to tinker with a little bit because I had had 20 years before I got with him. True. So it was nice to be able to work together with him. But yes, he had the best system I've ever been around to identify players and then to evaluate them to fit our scheme and our system. So it was all about fit. And I know they do that at Alabama. And it's not about recruiting the best players per se. It's about recruiting the best players for us. And that's for the us. philosophy he uses at Alabama. Interesting. Okay. And so this will help us transition to the Saints a bit more. Uh, playing quarterback in the NFL, we know, is about so much more than just athletic ability. We saw Drew Brees process defenses expertly for 15 years in New Orleans. Uh, I'm not so sure we're, we know which of the top uh, quarterbacks coming out in 2021 will be able to uh, A, make all the throws and B, process information uh, on an NFL level. So I'm not so sure which that we know yet which one of them are going to be able to do both of those things, Randy. I mean, how difficult is it to truly evaluate more than just physical talent and draft preparation? I think it's the hardest thing, Rachel. It's the hardest information to gather. And I think ideally you want guys that can do both, right? Mm -hmm. That physically can make all the throws and have no limitations, but they've also got to be able to I think one misnomer, people on the outside don't realize how much information these guys have to intake. And it's in a, a week of preparing. It's in a day of practice. It's in a, a game day. The amounts of information that these quarterbacks take in and have to spit out in, I say, segments of seven seconds on each play is crazy. So they have to um, be smart. They have to be able to process this in a timely fashion. The difference in the college game and in the pro game, and this is goes with the evaluation question you ask, and, and we've got to project this, is the pro game is so fat, so much faster 
the college game, it, the way the clock is kept, you, you might have 15, 20, sometimes series in a college game. You might have seven or eight in an NFL game. So you can't wait till we get to the sidelines to go over everything that just happened with the coach. We've got a process on the fly all the time. So when the clock doesn't stop after every first down, you know, that's why pro games all end in three hours, right? Because they're moving. You're, we're rolling. There's no in between. You can't wait till halftime to make adjustments. Jim always used to say that back when we were with the Saints. He said, if we wait till the 12 minutes we have at halftime, we're going to lose the game. We got to make the adjustments on the fly. And so that's the big thing about quarterbacks is you have to find the ones that can make the adjustments on the fly on their own without having to come to the sidelines and sit down and look at all the pictures and, and everything else that go with it. So that separates good from great in my mind. And that's a hard thing to find out in your valuations. Right, right. Absolutely. And uh, do you do you think, I mean, we hear, obviously, I mean, Trevor Lawrence, uh, Zach Wilson, uh, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, uh, Mac Jones. I mean, any any gut feeling on who might have the, the most successful career of those? Or is it just impossible to tell? Well, it's not impossible. I think you, you, I have them rated just like other, you know, entities have them rated, whether it's an NFL team or what. And, and I have Trevor Lawrence at the top. He has mm-hmm. all, all the boxes checked. He's a big, strong dude who can make yeah. all the throws. I think the biggest question I have about him is learning an NFL offense and processing it at a higher rate of speed than he's ever had to do before at Clemson. And then I have uh, Zach Wilson rated second behind him. Mm-hmm. Zach does so many things inside the pocket and outside the pocket that he plays and does more level two and level three quarterback tasks than any of the ones for me in this bit in this this year's draft. The other guys, the other three guys for me all have some questions. One maybe more physical uh, limitations, one maybe just body of work limitations, competition. They mm-hmm. all have a less clear path to being successful. So I think that's why you see the consensus a little bit all over the place in rating QBs three, four, and five. It Absolutely. kind of depends who you ask. It's it's like Baskin Robbins, right? We they have 31 <laughs> flavors for a reason because everybody likes something different. Wow. Oh my gosh, man. Compare, <laughs> comparing the uh, three, four, five quarterbacks to uh, which, what's your favorite ice cream flavor, man? Oh my goodness. Oh, uh, wow. So yeah, this, 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 uh, after one and two, it is going to be something else to see right. where this draft goes. So when you look at the saints, I mean, Sean Payton is one of the league's longest tenured coaches, uh, with, with one team, but for the first time in 15 years, they're going to have a quarterback battle ahead of them and some clear needs to address in the draft. I mean, in my mind, cornerback is most notable. What do you think, Randy? Well, I definitely agree with you. I mean, Sean knows what he's doing. You can't dispute that at all. I think it's going to be a fascinating battle to watch. And I'm I'm happy we're going to have some preseason games this year because that is going to go a long ways to determining, I think, who wins that job. Um, I think both the two quarterbacks there in, in Jameis and Taysom have such a different skill set. I don't know that whoever wins the job, really, they're going to play both guys all year long. I just feel that, that the skill sets are so divergent that he, Sean is smart, right? He's going to find a way to use them both throughout the whole year anyway. Mm-hmm. But I think that preseason, uh, in the preseason games this year that we missed uh, in prior, last year are going to be great things four battles like this all around the league. And I think with regard to their needs, what this is a different team, right? They had to release a lot of players because of the cap, because of where they had 
had pushed money off to. But I do know this, they still have a good frontline group. They, they are going to be not quite as deep as they've been in the past. But I think that's a reflection of, of the top talent that they've been able to bring in there. And yeah. picking as late as they do, 28th, here's what I would say. I would say they'd be less inclined to fill a specific need, more inclined to pick the best player available. Nobody stacks their board the same. So the Saints pick in 28 will probably get somebody on their board that they rank in the top 20. So that for me sets them, sets that guy uh, is going to be a much better player for them than filling the need and maybe picking a guy that they have ranked 28th or 29th. So I think if they stick to their board and, and, and are loyal to the process, they'll end up getting a player that's really uh, a top ranked player for them. I go back to my, First draft with the Saints, and I know this is a long time ago, but we didn't have a first round pick. We right. had the first pick in the second round. So we're talking we, about 2000, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Okay. And, and we ended up trying like heck to trade that first pick in the second round and get up into the first round, and it never happened. But the point of it is at 33, which was the first pick in the second round, we got Darren Howard, a defensive lineman that we had as our eighth player on our board. So my point is everybody stacks their board different. They may end up getting at 28, a guy that's in their top 10 on their board. So as long as they have conviction for having lined them up correctly, and that's really all you can do is use your evaluations to line them up correctly. You'll get maybe a top 10 player on your board at 28, just because you've lined them up different. You have different criteria. That's when that fit matters more than anything else. Darren Howard came to us that year, I think set the rookie sack sack record of 10 and a half sacks or something like that. So they're going to get a good player at 28. Yeah. Oh, I, I remember Darren Howard. Well, absolutely. Yeah. That's fascinating. I love this, this, this in-depth insight from, from a GM's perspective. That's a great point that you make about that at 28, they might be less inclined to fill a specific need, but more inclined to get the best player available on their I board. Would, yeah. Yeah, yeah. At, at 28. So we'll certainly be, be watching for that. So you, you brought up the preseason games and uh, that, right. I mean, it's certainly going to, going to help uh, with the evaluation process, obviously only, uh, only three. Now right. this will be the first uh, season with only three. Uh, I, I think that's a good thing. I, I think the yeah. preseason always drags on a little too long, but I think right. three is a good number. Do you agree? I do think it's a good number. And I think it's really important for a team like New Orleans, who has, I think, taken a hit depth wise, mm -hmm. just because of all the players they've had to release. So there's going to be, in my opinion, a lot of jobs up for grabs. Mm -hmm. And those preseason games, it'd be hard to, to make your roster and fill it out without having done some things in preseason games. So I think yeah. the timing's right for them. I think you'll see them play tons of backups in those three games, maybe not play starters much at all, other than have to put the quarterbacks out there to get a feel and surround them with the offensive line that can keep them upright. But they're going to have a lot of jobs won in preseason in New Orleans this year because the depth, like I said, has been diminished because of the cap ramifications that they had to face uh, just to get cap compliant uh, two months ago. Right, right. And of course, the 17th regular season game uh, taking effect as well. Uh, yep. Some mixed feelings on on that <laughs> front. Uh, yep, but, I can uh, understand yes, that. Yes, yes. We'll, uh, we'll save that for another for another episode. <laughs> I'm dying to uh, to for you to relive your experience of being GM for the Saints' first playoff win ever. Uh, from a fan's perspective, I know that's a moment we'll always remember. Uh, right. did, did you get a sense of, after all the years of futility, uh, 
just how unreal that was for, for New Orleans. And I mean, that obviously helped you win the NFL executive of the year. So, I mean, just, just what was the atmosphere like that you remember and just how, what was it like? Well, it was pretty cool. I'll say this. And I have 30 some years in the NFL. The two short seasons I spent in New Orleans were the best of my professional life. It was awesome. And it was mainly because of the fans. Um, They accepted us right away as even though we're from the North, they accepted us as one of them. Um, They, they, uh, obviously are passionate about their team. I think they felt like we were doing the right thing. So it was a really good fit, even though coming from Seattle to New Orleans was a big jump for everybody involved. I brought four or five guys with me and, and some of those guys are still there. I mean, Mickey was on that first plane ride headed down there as well as uh, Mike Ball, one of their scouts. And, and those guys are still there, but my two years were were really an awesome time for me professionally. I enjoyed it. Uh, I loved our time there. You mentioned the playoff win. Mm-hmm. The thing I remember about the, the playoff win was I'm a very even keel guy, right? I don't really get down. I don't really get high. I'm kind of the same every day. And I would be like that on most Sundays. And I, I don't cheer. I don't holler. I don't you know have a reaction to much at all. But we scored a touchdown in that playoff game to go up. I don't know what it was, 33 or 38 to 10 or something like that. Halfway, maybe toward the end of the third quarter, we scored a touchdown that I thought was going to put the game away. Mm-hmm. And I remember under my desk where I watched the game from in the Super Bowl, like clenching my fists and, and kind of, you know, yeah, that, that was the, that was the dagger, right? That was <laughs> but it. It wasn't. Yeah. It was, from that minute on things went South for us so bad yeah. that I blame myself the whole time because I celebrated, I should never have celebrated. I screwed over the whole franchise because I, you know, uh, was counting my, you know, winnings before the game was over, you know? And so I, I always have that feeling about that game and I'll never do I cheer for a game anymore. I, I'm afraid to even let any emotion out because I felt that I was getting payback because because as we know, that game went right down to the end yeah. and it wasn't until Akeem dropped the ball yes. that we even were able to celebrate. So I blame myself for the uh, premature celebration. That's for sure. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> wow. But no, fans certainly got the time to celebrate right when Hakeem right. dropped the ball and Brian Milne recovered. And yes, right. it was, uh, <laughs> yeah. So it was a moment that we'll never forget. So you, you said that your two short seasons in New Orleans were the best of your professional life. So yeah. less than two years later, news breaks that you've been fired and you were quoted in the AP story as saying, you had hoped to make New Orleans home the rest of your career. So first of all, how it sounds like that was true. How, how, how true was that? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I mm-hmm. loved it there. Family loved it there. It was a mm-hmm. great setup for us. Um, we happened to live in Mandeville and the schools were really yeah. good there. And, and uh, I just have one daughter, but she was very happy there. Um, Mr. Benson had treated me like family. And so I had no doubts. That's where I would be for a long time. And it really enjoyed everything about it. Like I said, the people had accepted us and, and I was just as shocked as everybody on the outside, for sure. I remember going into the meeting with Mr. Benson with my pad and paper thinking we're going to uh, knock out the contract here. And I was two years into a three-year deal at the time, and he had offered me an extension two weeks prior to that. And we just hadn't had a chance to talk about it yet at all. So I really thought that's what this meeting was about. And then I come out a half hour later and 
he's asking me to resign. So things can go south in a hurry in the NFL. I have no idea why or, or what happened to this day. And like you said, 20 years ago, it's mm-hmm. not any more clear in my mind now than it was then, but I've been able to put it behind me and, and have a decent career since then. But yeah, I loved my time in New Orleans and would have loved to have been there with everybody else. Like Mickey's been there, like Mike's been there for 20 years. I, I know they love it there. Do you keep in touch with Mickey Loomis much? Yeah, I actually do. You know, we were best friends for 20 years in the business. We spent all of our time in Seattle together. And so, yes, we, uh, we talk, uh, we, we saw each other last summer. I actually shot him and him and, and Sean both came up to Idaho close to where I live. So mm-hmm. I, I saw a little bit of them then. And yeah, we have a dialogue and, uh, a lot of times it's not necessarily about football. It's about other things, golf or fishing or something like that. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a good relationship and always has been. Beautiful, beautiful. And so I uh, wanted to ask, I mean, I, I speak on the podcast regularly about how I've been laid off from uh, my job, my previous job in journalism. So what advice would you give someone facing a similar career situation who has to pick up the pieces and find their way again, as you have so successfully. Yeah, it's hard. It's, there's no doubt it's when your life gets turned upside down, there's no easy answer for it, but somehow you've got to keep one hand, uh, one eye on the future. Somehow when a door shuts, they always say another one opens. And, and uh, what you got to try to do in my opinion is keep all options open. Now it's really hard in this day and time of COVID where nothing's really shaking anywhere, anytime, but what I try to, and what I've told people in the past is just prepare everything you can to be ready for when the, the world opens up again after COVID. So whether it's uh, doing podcasts, whether it's writing, whether it's doing anything you like, just try to stay in as many lanes as you can. And so, so you have options and really it's all about options. That's, that's what our world is, right? It's about timing and options and, and you have to have the positive attitude that something good is going to break for you. I think it's hard for people, and, and I was like this myself, to work on your trade in the dark. And if, what I mean is nobody knows what you're doing. Nobody knows how hard you're working, but you have to be willing to do that. In some cases, I mean, I did it with the chargers. I felt like for 10 years, I worked on my trade in the dark and not everybody can do that. It's really hard. So that's what you have to keep telling yourself is somebody will notice, but I'm going to work on my trade in the dark for as long as I can, because I'll be better for it in the end when I come out and there are opportunities. Wow. Work on your trade in the dark. Yeah. It can be hard to have a positive attitude if you feel like nobody's watching or nobody's noticing, but that's right. Yeah. But if you keep preparing and keep all options open. Right. That's the key. And that's what I remind myself as I go on this journey. And it's so true. And if you can make connections and find people or just find one person who hears your your message and appreciates it, it, it's, it's so important. And that can be enough to keep going. And that I just love everything that you just said. And if and if you listen to just five minutes of this podcast, listen to that, <laughs> right. Listen to that last Q and a that we just had. So Randy, this has been just fantastic insight. So let's get into our final segment. What I like to call the random round, uh, just quick questions and quick answers to close out each episode. So right. first, first up, what is a sports venue you have not been to that you would love to visit? Are there any? <laughs> Uh, yes, I've always wanted to go to Wrigley Field. I've never been to Wrigley Field in Chicago, had tickets to, I'm a San Francisco Giants fan. So, uh, went back to a friend's graduation of many years ago in, in, uh, 
Purdue had tickets to a Giants Cubs game and it got rained out. So I never really got to go to the game, but yeah, I would love to go to um, Wrigley Field and and see the Cubs play just to see the environment and see what it's all about. Wonderful. What is one word you would use to describe Drew Brees? Oh boy. Um, Driven. I think more driven than anything else. This guy has come and, and broken through so many glass ceilings that people put on him. I just think he's more driven than anybody I've, I've come to know. Yeah, no doubt. What profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? Mm, I want to be a guide in Alaska hunting on Kodiak Island. Oh, <laughs> you know, that, that would be my dream job. That like I said, amazing. I, I, I grew up in a, in a hunting and fishing climate in Northern Idaho. So a guide that, in fact, my cousin became that coming out of high school and he's never gone back to Idaho since he's still been in Alaska all this time. So that, that there, you can find me, uh, when our country's in trouble, I'll be in Alaska <laughs> guiding uh, fishing and hunting trips in Alaska. Mm-hmm. All right. What is a food you could not live without? Oh boy, that's a good one. You know what? And this, this is going to sound like a, a, a local answer, but I love salmon. Salmon is the best is my favorite food. Um, I could eat it every day in some way or fashion. So I don't think I could be without salmon. I, I like it that much. I'm a fish eater. That is one of my favorite fishes <laughs> as well. Yes. All right. Name a role model who impacted your life. Um, you know, and this is a, not one word, but, uh, Robert Fraley. I will give you that name. He was, uh, Payne Stewart's agent who died in a plane crash with Payne, the the pro golfer that people remember. He was also Cortez Kennedy's agent, a Hall of Fame defensive tackle for us at the Seahawks. Mm -hmm. But Robert Fraley helped me in so many ways. Um, He was taken from us way too early, Mm -hmm. but he kind of became a mentor of mine and uh, a guy I really respected and looked up to. He also represented the likes of, you know, Bill Parcells, Tom Coughlin, Bill Cower, all of these uh, famous pro sports coaches and players. But for me, he was as as much of a mentor uh, on a personal level. And so I miss him a lot. And uh, he's been gone now quite some time, even before I even got to New Orleans. But yes, Robert Fraley. Wonderful. And if you could spend an hour with anyone, past or present, who would it be? Um, You know, I would pick Tom Landry. Uh, the old coach of the Cowboys. Of course, yeah. yeah. Uh, I grew up as a Cowboy fan. Uh, loved everything about the way he handled himself. Um, I loved the the formalness that he presented every set of Sunday, and I loved the fact that he was an even keel personality. Um, mm. I just think we could all learn from somebody like that so much. And again, I'm not talking necessarily football. I'm talking about life in general. Yeah. I just like the way and respect the way he lived his life. Tom Landry. Love that one. And finally, Randy, remind everybody where listeners can connect more with you online. Well, they can follow me on Twitter. Sometimes we might get into a little bit of a discussion on Twitter at Randy Mueller underscore at Randy Mueller underscore. Um, Mm -hmm. They can find me on The Athletic, which is a free podcast, the the Mm -hmm. football GM we do with Mike Sando. And then on my blog at MuellerFootball.com, where a lot more of the things like we've conversed about today, people will find that on there as well. Awesome. Well, Randy Mueller, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Black and Gold Rush. Make sure to subscribe on the podcast app of your choice and leave a rating and review. Also, I'd love to connect more. Come say hey on Twitter or Instagram at Rachel W 504 
and let me know what you thought of this episode. For show notes and more, head over to my website at rachelwjones.me. Until next time, who dat?